I want politics to be boring again. I don't want it to be this like star studded reality television program where people are up on the stage yelling at each other. And that's the politician that Carrie Lake is. She is that Trump tried and true charismatic rolls in the offensive joke. The whole crowd's laughing about Paul Pelosi being attacked in his home. And you're like, how, how is she, she's masterful in the way that she commands a crowd. And I think that's, that's just the difference. Katie Hobbs wants to do the work. She cares about the people of Arizona. She's not there because she's a show person. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Laura Pearl, the executive director of Flip the Vote. Flip the Vote raises money through a donor network for grassroots organizing groups in key swing states. We had a good conversation about how Laura came to this role, the origins of Flip the Vote, what it did in 2022 and before, and where she's trying to take the group into the future. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Laura Pearl with Flip the Vote. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Laura, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, of course. My name is Laura Pearl. I'm the executive director of Flip the Vote, which is a fundraising organization. We raise money for BIPOC-led grassroots groups in swing states. I recently got to quit my corporate job to do this full time. So it's an honor. I love the work and will be doing it for quite some time. Well, there's going to be work for quite some time trying to get our politics right. Absolutely. Just by way of fleshing out that biography, can you talk a little bit about where you grow up, what the roots of your political interests are and your education? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a native Arizonan, born and raised here in Phoenix, Republican parents, the, the McCain Republicans, deep McCain roots in the state. And as I was growing up, I went to private schools here in the state, which is just important <laughs> to note that our public school system is struggling, something I have come to learn in my work. And I just noticed in my high school years that everyone I most admired and most respected was either a Democrat or further left. <laughs> and so that just kind of struck me. Did you talk about that with your Republican parents? Did that cause any kind of rift? 
It, it didn't really, honestly, I think my mom is, was always the socially liberal, fiscally conservative Republican. She felt really strongly about abortion rights and LGBTQ rights. So I, I always had that foundation, but I was really raised to think about equality and fairness. So when I would bring my ideas home, it was always a really productive conversation because I was going based entirely off of what I'd learned from my mom and the values that she'd instilled in me. So she is no longer a Republican. <laughs> yeah, I think that was just like really revelatory for me that everyone I felt inspired by or was really drawn to and I felt had great ideas was liberal. So I went to school in the Bay Area. I went to Santa Clara. I went in as a finance major and that wasn't quite doing it for me. I felt a little boxed in. So added an econ double major and that was starting to get a little more into what I enjoyed talking about trade policy and what globalization is meaning in a changing world. And then I took a gender economics class and I was like, this is my bread and butter. This is right where I want to be ended up adding a gender studies minor as well. And that really just opened my eyes to how economics, social policy, racial injustice, economic inequality, it's all so intertwined. I originally felt I was just a feminist and then realizing through schooling and being exposed to different ideas that I was also an abolitionist and I was also felt really strongly about fair housing and policing. So I, that was a fun time just kind of evolving in my thought in college. And I actually there, I had an economics professor named John Ifcher who started Flip the Vote. It was just a ragtag bunch of volunteers at the time. I was in his book club, didn't get any uh, school credit <laughs> or anything. It was just some nerds that would show up Wednesday mornings and discuss economic books. <laughs> and he picked up on my politics from that. And right after graduation, John asked if I wanted to volunteer with this group he'd started called Flip the Vote. And that was in 2020. And I was wrapped in ever since I've been diehard Flip the Vote. So it fit really well with what I'd been learning about myself and learning about my politics because of that focus on equality and justice that Flip the Vote kind of has entrenched in, in what they were doing then and what we do now. Tell me a little bit more about this professor. I didn't catch his name. Yeah. John Ifcher. What does he teach? Yeah. He's an economics professor. He teaches economics of the public sector, which I did not take. I took economics of poverty and inequality with him. And that's what a lot of his research is surrounding. And he's our board chair now at Flip the Vote, just an all around great guy, very bashful. I love embarrassing him talking about what a good person he is. He started Flip the Vote, kind of, I call it his like his Clark Kent. He goes home and takes off his professor jacket and puts on his Flip the Vote jacket in 2018 out of just feeling a little desperate after Trump's election and wanting to know what he as a single person could do to really impact our national politics. 
and it truly was around the kitchen table. He and some friends, he was talking, you know, what can we do? And they settled on just asking their closest friends for $2,000 for a slate of house candidates that John identified as being flippable in 2018. And they were going to reach out to 25 friends, had the goal of raising $50,000 and ended up raising $750,000 for these 20 house candidates, 11 of which flipped in 2018. They were under the radar candidates, people that there was a shot, but it was going to be a roll of the dice who won the race. That's how that all started with John's great idea of, it was just so simple and that people were so interested in what he was doing. They're like, of course I'll give. And can you give me materials to ask my friends? So it became this snowball effect of just concerned people who wanted to make an impact and trusted this advisor, John, who had done the research and identified candidates he felt were were quality and could flip the seat. There are simply numerous political action committees and other enterprises of different sorts that do sort of similar things, ranging from like swing left, things that have gotten fairly, fairly sizable. Why do you think he thought a new organization made sense as opposed to just helping one that existed? Yeah, I don't think he did. I think it was entirely unintentional that we came to be. It really was just an idea of someone was concerned and wanted to make a difference. And then we, he, I, I came on board in 2020, but he and the original leadership team had this network that they'd built and they're like, well, we can't just let this go to the wayside, this mailing list, this group of supporters, people started really in the Bay Area, Oakland and Berkeley and became national. So it was not at all trying to replace or replicate what was already going on within the progressive fundraising movement with Movement Voter Project, Mind the Gap, Swing Left, Aaron Frank, you know, that that all existed. But what we were doing, and there were a lot of conversations about, you know, whether we continue or merge with another group. We talked about seeing if MVP would take us in as a partner. But what we do a little differently, and I think really helps us be effective with small dollar donors and average people who want to make a difference is the relationship aspect. So whenever we share our recommendations, then the house candidates now are grassroots partners. We always have a twofold ask, which is first encouraging people to give, donate generously. We don't do the uh, Dem party five minutes until our fundraising deadline texts, we're asking people to really dig deep and give to meet the moment. And then the second part of the ask is always, will you host an event like this yourself and bring your own network into it? So it's really based on relationships and based on trust. Someone who you know shares your values is inviting you to come to this. You're not getting a text from a random candidate or a random fundraising organization. And it brings a sense of community to the work too, that everyone is is brought in to flip the vote by a friend or, or a family member. Can you sort of tell me about the trajectory of flip the vote? Because it seems to go from this fundraising organization for congressional races, right? To what you introduced it as where you're 
supporting grassroots organizations, particular kind of them. Tell me about like how it changed over time and why. Definitely. So the huge success, unexpected success of 2018, they kind of went back to the drawing board and said, okay, we have this supporter base now. What, what can we do with it? And in 2020, as we were setting our recommended organizations, it was in the midst of the Black Lives Matter protests after the murder of George Floyd. We felt that investing in single candidates was no longer the most impactful way that we could leverage this little community that we'd built. So we looked into the then six states that we felt were most competitive. And we were looking for states where there was something at stake at at multiple levels. So at the federal level, a Senate race, and of course, President Biden was running then in 2020, all the way down to a flippable state legislature, or now we know the importance of secretaries of state. So we identified those six states. And then within those states, we wanted to know the most effective way to generate an extra Democratic vote. And in each of those states, we know nationwide, we know that the new American majority, so young people, people of color and unmarried women are 64 percent in 2020. They were 64 percent of the electorate, 20 percentage points less likely to vote, but 22 percentage points more likely to vote for Democrats. So that's the golden opportunity right there is investing and registering and turning out those voters. So we found in each of those states, working with the Movement Voter Project, who's a really fantastic and trusted advisor of ours, one group in each state, one grassroots group led by people of color focused on this new American majority, who is registering these voters, empowering them and making them lifelong issue-based voters. And we just started funneling money to them with the racial justice an economic justice motivation that we've kind of found and been inspired by in 2020 in mind and ended up in 2020 raising $6 million for that first slate. And then we, we did not identify Georgia as being flippable originally, but when it got to the Senate runoff, we invested in a few groups in Georgia and raised an additional million dollars there. So $7 million total from one one econ professor's idea that he wanted to make a little bit of a difference to $7 million just two years later. It just speaks to how much people want to see change and want to feel like they're making an impact. And that's the promise we always try to make is that we did the research. So your marginal dollar, if you can give $100, it's not going to be the difference in the Mark Kelly, Blake Masters race in Arizona, but it can pay a canvasser for a couple hours in that state to help that race, help school board candidates and candidates up and down the ballot. So that was the um, transition in 2020. Mind you, it was all volunteer at that point. We had a team of about 10 just volunteers doing these parties, giving our presentation with our recommendation and inviting everyone to host their own. And in 2021, it just wasn't sustainable. Everyone was pooped. And we needed to reassess and figure out what the future looks like for Flip the Vote. There were a ton of conversations, like I mentioned, about 
either combining with an existing group or figuring out what was best. And ultimately, our special sauce, our secret ingredient is that relational fundraising, the person-to-person work. So we decided to stick around. And John, very jokingly, asked me if I would quit my job and do this full time. And I was like, that's an option. Like, <laughs> let's do it. I'm ready. So I, I was working in consulting. It was totally fine. I worked with lovely people, but it just wasn't fulfilling. So I got to leave that work, do flip the vote full time starting in March, though I did both for a minute there, which was <laughs> good fun. And we picked it back up and stayed the course with the grassroots groups this year in 2022, because we think that is the best way to build lasting community power. And we raised $3 million this year across eight states, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. I try to do it alphabetically and I never get it right. (laughs) What are the groups that you supported? Yeah. So in Arizona, here where I am, we support Lucha, Living United for Change in Arizona. Georgia, we support the Asian American Advocacy Fund. If we get questions about that, people ask, why don't you support a black voting organization in Georgia? In part, we were compelled after the Atlanta spa shootings to invest in the Asian American community in Georgia, and it's the fastest growing population there. We also know that they're not getting the attention that some of the black voting organizations are as they should. Stacey Abrams is incredible and and really built some, some powerful infrastructure there in Georgia. So that's our partner in Georgia, Nevada. We work with Make the Road Action Nevada. They're in Latinx communities. Pennsylvania, we're also working with Make the Road Action. It's a national organization with state-based chapters. So they have a specific Pennsylvania operation. Wisconsin, we support Block, Black Leaders Organizing for Communities in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Angela Lang is fantastic. Michigan, we support Detroit Action. Great news out of Michigan. We flipped the both chambers of their um, state state house and senate so that's incredible they got to remap their districts and so it was not impossible like it was in a lot of other states right yeah so michigan was a big that was really exciting minnesota we support take action minnesota so this has become more than six because it it was six we started with six yeah we were at seven this year and then late in the cycle we added nevada we didn't expect nevada to be as close as as it was So we're up to eight and it's constantly evolving. We're assessing, you know, if one state becomes safe enough and we feel really confident that the group is well-funded, operating well, maybe we'll remove a group or a state or add another group within a state where we spend a lot of time discussing these things. And North Carolina, who? Advanced Carolina. They're a fantastic organization. I think something that's a little unique about Advanced Carolina in our portfolio or our slate, they're expanding into rural counties, which I think is a really interesting next frontier for the work that we're doing is going into rural counties and engaging with those voters who are kind of overlooked by the Democratic Party. Yeah, there are some folks working on that, but it's really... 
yeah, Sarah been Jane. going the wrong direction hard for a while. So yeah, I saw that you'd spoken to Sarah Jane's at RDI, and I I love what they're doing there. I think it's so smart, and I point people there oftentimes, especially people who are particularly concerned about state legislatures. Think we can make up a little ground in those rural districts, not overnight. It's never going to be overnight, as we know, but slowly chip away at some of that, the misconceptions out there in the rural areas. How did that change in who you support going from candidates to organizations affect fundraising? Yeah, so the groups we support are all C4 organizations, meaning they're not tax deductible. They engage in partisan work. And we know from national trends, that's the hardest dollar to raise. It's not tax deductible. It doesn't have that shiny sexiness of a candidate. But we found that when we can really explain to someone why it's important to give that way to grassroots partisan work, they're so on board. People who have traditionally given to candidates or largely to candidates. And I think that when you can you can explain to someone that it's not just a door knock. Say here in Arizona, it's a door knock saying, are you registered to vote? And here's why you need to vote for these candidates. Here's why they support your values. That is a game changer to be able to have those conversations on the doors instead of trying to be nonpartisan and keeping kind of away from the fray. We need to be doing the persuasion work, not just the registration. All of our groups practice relational organizing. So the idea that it's a constant conversation of why should you be a voter? Why people drive too fast on your road? Did you know that's that's politics? Your city council person can put a speed bump in and you can hold them accountable if we build enough community power. So I think being able to talk to donors and make really clear that the this is an investment more than it is just a one-off donation to a candidate. Or does it make you mad that a guy like Peter Thiel can go write a check when it takes you so much effort to raise? Of course it does. <laughs> <laughs> of course it does. It's so frustrating. That's part of honestly what's kind of fun for me in our work is this, it, it's an uphill battle. We are the good guys. And it's a, there's a very insidious and present and evil bad guy the people like peter Thiel and these billionaires who are coming into races putting dark money into races that oftentimes we don't even know how involved they are in a race we're raising it hundred dollar donations at a time but it takes me back to kind of that that community aspect is these people who come through flip the vote and learn about the work that these groups are doing and thinking differently now about how they can be giving politically, how they can be effective in their donations. You can't unring that bell. People will always think a little differently before sending their money to Amy McGrath or another big name top of the ticket candidate. So I'm hopeful that it's, it's, like all of the work that our, our partner groups are doing that we're doing, we're planting seeds that are going to continue to bloom. People are always going to now think differently, talk to their friends differently about how we can give and who we should give to. I think we have about 20,000 people on our mailing list. That's 20,000 little megaphones that we can share how we can be most impactful in our political giving. 
And I just have to hold on to the idea that that's going to eventually be more powerful than the Peter Thiels and the the Elon Musks of the world. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you got to sum up a lot of the work of people like you and your lists and I'm glad you're doing it. Is it basically you in this organization, like staff wise? It is. Yeah. I'm our first and only paid staff member. We have our incredibly dedicated volunteer board. John Amchur is the board chair. And these people on our board probably spend as much time doing flip the vote as they do their daytime jobs. So I'm not the only staff person. uh, I'm literally the only staff person, but not in terms of effort and hours. And we are also a 501c4. So fundraising for our operating costs is difficult. That's how we can be most effective is by having that designation, but it does make it hard. So expanding is something, of course, we dream of, but have to take all of those things into consideration. That Striking that balance between keeping a tight, small budget, every dollar we fundraise goes directly to our partner groups and our operating budget is raised separately. It's a, a seesaw of sorts where we we need to I feel so strongly about continuing to make that promise to our donors that we don't handle the money. It goes straight from them to our grassroots groups and having a bigger operating budget changes that a little. What's the relationship with movement voter project? Because they do a very similar thing at a little bit bigger scale. I guess I talked to Billy Wimsat about that at one point about just his own path in political entrepreneurship. You mentioned that you got some help in picking the groups, but Is there any ongoing relationship or how do you think about them? Yeah, definitely. I think of Movement Voter Project almost as like our our big sister or like a close cousin. We still have a really close relationship with them and work with them to, if we make changes to our recommendations or enter a new state when we entered Nevada, MVP was really helpful with that. We present our criteria to MVP. They come back with a short list saying, these are the groups that kind of fit what you're looking for. So we can do our own level of vetting and decide which group. They can kind of be like a research arm for you. Precisely. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And they're super generous with their information and really helpful to us in being able to identify these groups. And we get this question sometimes during presentations and, you know, what is the difference between us and MVP? And it's really that it's the degree of focus. MVP, I believe, has 600 plus partners, which is incredible. They move a ton of money. They do a fantastic job. And we have very similar missions. But we've chosen eight partner groups, you know, with their help, knowing they've already met the MVP standards, figuring if they fit the flip the vote list. So we have just a much narrower focus than MVP, taking their principles and and what they're doing, investing in grassroots work and bringing just a really select group to our community and saying, these are the groups that we think are really going to be the game changers this year. Tell me a little bit how you watch 2022 politically. Nervously, biting my nails. The headwinds were real and not having a big, scary cartoon villain in the White House, I think took a little wind from some of the movement's sales. People 
felt a little bit of that, you know, like we can sit back for a minute. Trump's out of the White House. Of course, we know that that Trumpism is very much alive. But as the year progressed, I became very cautiously hopeful. I think watching Roe fall was, as a young woman, personally devastating, but empowering to see how many people, people with or without uteruses who understand just how unfair that is. That felt like a huge gust of wind at our backs to have that energy around Roe. If you're paying attention to polls and and the news cycle, we're losing some of that momentum. And I was getting nervous about that. It's not as much part of the public conversation talking about Roe. Now we're talking about gas prices and we're talking about crime. It's a very Republican controlled narrative. But for some reason, being in Arizona, I had hope against all odds. I didn't tell a single person that because I had no reason to. The polls were all bad. It was just looking pretty doom and gloom. But I get we get reports back from our partner groups in the States. We see Lucha here in Arizona had massive events where they would bring their community together, have burritos and fill out ballots. It was literally called burritos and ballots. And then they took party buses to drop off their ballots together. And so things like that and seeing Block in Wisconsin had more canvassers on the doors, paid canvassers, being paid a living wage than they ever had. They had 75 paid canvassers this year. And seeing that, I was like, I don't think we're going to get trounced in the way that people think we are. This community power is very real. There are a lot of people who are paying closer attention than they ever have because of one, the degree of engagement with the new American majority, two, women who took for granted that they had control over their body, really being like, oh, damn, they can actually take this away from us and and getting super riled up about that. I told you my mom's a Republican and well, she's no longer, she was a Republican and we have a, a lot of McCain Republicans in this state. Women who are friends with my mom who have never voted for Democrats in their life texting me saying, hey, would you send me your sample ballot? I'm just going to copy what you did. I'm like, wow. (laughs) So I felt felt hopeful. And I'm not going to say it's a complete victory. It's a mixed bag, of course, the 2022 results. I'm hesitant to say, but I do believe part of me that this could be a big, big turning point for how elections go moving forward in this country. We know that demographics are shifting. Young people are more progressive than ever and paying more attention. Communities of color are seeing more investment by both state parties and donors. And I'm hopeful that this is going to be one of the last nail biters. (laughs) Well, I, I wouldn't bet on that, but it was important every vote we scraped for. I mean, it added up to a different feeling for the next two years when we immediately have to be fighting the next fight for 2024. I mean, it does not stop, but we're in a better position than if people like you hadn't been doing the work. I mean, how does that feel? When I interview somebody, like I I talked to Angela a long time ago, from Milwaukee or like, you She's know, so cool. <laughs> uh, I've talked to a number of these people. I know that I feel sometimes inspired, sometimes more connected to the efforts that are going on. 
you must feel part of the fight. How does that impact you personally? It's really powerful. It feels, I, I've for so long been so inspired by, you know, people like Angela Davis and Gloria Steinem and Jane Fonda, total white lady goals. And not to the degree, but like, I'm, I'm almost kind of feeling like part of that class of, of people who are fighting for justice and fighting for, for a better future. And it's surreal. I think being, being accepting that I'm, I'm a, becoming more of a force for positive change and progress in this country is, is exciting and a little bit of pressure. It's acknowledging that I can't guarantee a victory. I can do everything within my power to fundraise for these organizations, knock doors for these candidates, but accepting how incremental the progress is going to be and, and trying not to be disappointed by that and disappointed in myself. I think that's something that a lot of people in this work take on is that like, I didn't do enough. I should have done more. I wasn't impactful enough. And knowing that it's taking all of our little efforts across the country, across the globe to unravel this. We're unraveling so many systems of oppression very slowly. I'm so proud to be doing that and really committed to that, my little piece of unraveling. And to even be sat in the same like breath as Angela Lang, that's so cool. <laughs> I'm getting used to that and stepping into being a little bit of an impact maker. That's nice. And what are your aspirations to like turn this into? What would you love to be able to make out of Flip the Vote? Gosh, that is so tough and conversations that we are always having. I will say if you ask me in a few months, my brain has just been so consumed by the midterm that like talking about the future of flip the vote is like <laughs> feels like I haven't even gotten to process what happened You're probably going to have year. to deal with a Georgia runoff pretty soon. Yeah. Adding additional partners in Georgia. I'd love to see it continue to grow. So comparing midterm to midterm, we went from $750,000 raised to a little over $3 million. And I'd love to see that continue to grow and bring on staff people. And we are somewhat constrained by the relational model. Everyone who's coming in is invited by someone else. So we have to have a continuous stream of hosts. But we're seeing that. The need is, is not right now for more hosts for us. It's for more time and more capacity. It's me and nine volunteers who do our presentations. By August and September, we're doing up to 10, 15 a week. It's at this point, not as scalable as I would like, just with my human limitations. I would really like to see it grow. And what I was saying earlier about just changing how people think about political giving. I want to continue to be able to do that. And in this really personal setting of someone was invited by their friend to learn about this. You know, we go into every event knowing people are going to be receptive. 
and interested because they're progressives or Democrats or never Trumpers at least, and we're able to really connect with them and provide them a new way of thinking about the impact they can make. Do you know Haley Bash? Yes. Yes. Haley and I were texting as results came in. Because it seems like what she's working on is is very much the model that you use. And I just was curious if you like have talked to her about like what they do. Sounds like you have. But yes. Haley's become a, a good friend too. We're both in that little bit of a navigating uncharted territory as like the sole employee of but I love what, what they do over at Donor Organizer Hub, and I can't wait to see where Haley takes it. I've done, you know, little trainings with them and done, I think the most recent one I did was hosting an event. So just sharing with people how really the nuts and bolts of how to put on a, a fundraiser and a political event. What platform are you going to use? How are you going to send out your invitations and compile your list and all of that stuff? And I think that's a big gap is letting people who are just normal, concerned, everyday people step into that political advocate and activist role. We've gotten a number of hosts sent to us from Haley, still relationship-based, I say, since Haley's a friend of the organization. but. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's just empowering people to in their own networks make a, make some difference. I'm not in Arizona. I read accounts of the governor's campaign and the, the way they came out in the national press was almost like a fear of the Republican candidate Lake. Right. It was like she has real political skills. She's playing this Trump card really Literally. well, right? She might be the next star. She could be on the presidential ticket. She's formidable. The Democratic Secretary of State Hobbs who's running is maybe not as strong a communicator. It was almost like, and she's going to win and she's going to like be another DeSantis or something. How did you see that locally? Like, how did you see her and Hobbs and just give me that the local view, at least your local yeah, view. Yeah, my local view. Yeah. All opinions my own. Uh, <laughs> Carrie Lake, I grew up watching on local news. It was shocking to see this evolution into a big lie touting, really harmful candidate from someone who seemed just, you know, pretty much one of those like local celebrities who is not particularly notable in any way, besides that you'd be excited if you saw her at the grocery store. Katie Hobbs has been a public servant for ever. She has been in our state legislature at points working two jobs. She worked as a rideshare driver so she could continue to survive on a state legislator's salary had her life threatened as secretary of state. Really, I don't think anyone would have known the average Arizonan would have known Katie Hobbs's name until the 2020 election when she really stood up to the big lie and declared our election safe and did a good job of communicating that to the people of Arizona that, you know, the election was not stolen the best she could. And I think it's just two very 
very different candidates. Katie Hobbs, the big story was she wouldn't debate Carrie Lake. And we can all feel how we'd like about that. And there was a ton of punditry about what that meant and what that was going to do in the governor's race. And honestly, I think it was, it was a good decision. It's Katie Hobbs is not there to be on reality TV and to make a scene and to yell over each other. She's just not the, the sort. And you can't debate someone who does not exist in the same reality as you. <laughs> did she articulate that, that that was the reason or just left it out there? I don't think, well, I think I, I know this because I am paying much closer attention than the average person. Everyone else just thinks she didn't want to show up and debate Carrie Lake. I want politics to be boring again. I don't want it to be this like star studded reality television program where people are up on the stage yelling at each other. And that's the politician that Carrie Lake is. She is that Trump tried and true charismatic rolls in the offensive joke. The whole crowd's laughing about Paul Pelosi being attacked in his home. And you're like, how how is she she's masterful in the way that she commands a crowd and i think that's that's just the difference katie hobbs wants to do the work she cares about the people of arizona she's not there because she's a show person it makes me wonder about the people who are so attracted to that the showman mode show woman you know what right i mean you look at those rallies that trump or or carrie lake have it's it's almost like people are at a, a concert or a stand-up show. Like they're there to be entertained. A revival. Yeah, they're they're there to be entertained, and I think that's not what politics should be. Uh, I don't know. I kind of wish we had some of those. <laughs> I know watching Obama sometimes, and yeah, like, oh my gosh, yeah, he was so good going. at it. He was so so good, and and even in these last couple of weeks, when he's been campaigning, yeah, I I I agree. I wish we had it on our side, but I also wish. But Politics without having be to be boring. a liar. Totally. Yeah. A liar or, a, you know, someone who's fear-mongering. Yeah, or just making confrontation for the show of it. You know, I saw enough of her to worry and to conceive of a pretty strong dislike. Do you think she got radicalized and believes it? Or do you think it was just, like, ambition and I'm going to play a role? Yeah. That is really tough. I think, I think the latter personally, and this is just based on my God, I have no factual <laughs> evidence of this, but I do think it was an opportunity to play to her strengths as a very charismatic person to have a ton of power and a ton of influence. And she leaned into it and leaned into it really hard. That's my opinion. Again, who knows? Yeah. No basis. <laughs> Laura, is there a question that I failed to ask you that I should have? Don't think so. Just a, a soundbite of our three core strategies, which I touched on in different parts of different answers. You know, it's evidence-based recommendations, relational fundraising, and giving as an investment rather than just like a small dollar donation. All good things. I think just referencing them probably enough. I think hopefully this audience will know what you mean by that. Cool. 
Anything else you want to say? It's fun talking to you. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I am very glad we are in the spirits we're in because I, I didn't know if I would be. I was prepared for a lot worse. Me too. Yeah. Me too. I'd really braced myself. Good conditions considering everything. I think we've covered it. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed talking to you. Me too. That was Laura Pearl. She's at flipthevote.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.